Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Actually, it's it's what attitudes, what emotions did I play when I did that joke that they loved? And that is a signal from your audience that they love you when you play that emotion. You know, I think about somebody like Louis Black, who when he started was like everybody else in those days, sort of sport jacket and, you know, I'm single and all that stuff. But he discovered in the process of performing that being on the verge of a nervous breakdown uh, played great for him. And so he created more material that enabled him to do that and focused on subjects that enabled him to do that. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot Breathverse? We are back. Welcome to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I'm your host, comedian Joel Byers, and this show's mission is to cultivate the next generation of great self-made comics. And we're doing a very special author series, giving you access into the world's most influential and respected minds around the craft of comedy. The past few weeks, we've posted our interviews with people like Greg Dean and Judy Carter, and we're going to have several more rolling out over the next few weeks all to help you level up your comedy game faster than ever. We've interviewed over 400 comedians on this show, and now we're diving into the authors behind the craft of comedy. This episode features Hot Breath Pro Bo Johnson joining me on the Q&A. He actually helped make this entire author series possible, booking the guests, coming up with the questions, and we are all about here at Hot Breath empowering comics to create their own success, and part of how we do that is with our Hot Breath Pro community, for all graduates of our comedy masterclasses, we have a private Facebook group where we do a $100 joke contest every month and a lot of more activities to help you level up your game. So if that sounds helpful to you, you can join linked in the description of this episode. And now it is time, my friends, as there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Stephen Rosenfield. Stephen, how are you, sir? I am fine, Bo. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Man, this is this is awesome to have you on. As I was saying, your book is the first one that I, re- I was able to read. It is an absolute wonderful book. Um, and of the other ones that I've looked at, yours is the only one that takes you from the idea of, hey, I want to be a stand-up comic too. I've made it. I've fallen. Now I got to get back up. And how do I do that? And your checklist of, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Is absolutely amazing. So it is an amazing book. Thank you very much. And I actually read the, actually I read it and did the audio book. So I I read along with Steven. (laughs) So that was, that was great. But, um, so you went from a theater to stand up, right? That's correct. So, so what was that transition like? Um, well, it was interesting. I mean, I really backed into it. It it wasn't done with any plan. It just happened. Um, it was in the late 80s at a time when the comedy scene was booming like it never has since. I mean, it was crazy. Um, 
and um, my background is as a theater director and in between uh, productions, I would coach actors in the city. And during this boom time for comedy, some stand-ups came to work with me. And as I worked with them, I realized that unlike actors who are given a script, um, the writing for the stand-ups were equally important to their performance. So I started writing with them, and it was just really just to fix it. You know, it's like, wait a minute, this this could be a lot funnier. Did, um, did, did your theater help you with like act outs and everything about stand up? I think it did help me because I think in order to do what I do with comedians, you have to be able to really enter into another person's voice and enter into another person's, you know, psyche and mind. So, you know, what you're writing, you're writing for them. You're not writing for yourself. Um, and I think a background in theater really helped me with that. Um. So, so when you were growing up, I mean, did you have a lot of stand-ups that you had watched and and looked up to? Oh God, yes. Um, well, you know, the Ed Sullivan show was sort of the biggest show on television when I was a kid, and when the comedian came on, that was that was it for me. Um, I'd always loved stand-up. And I was very, I was fortunate because I actually saw uh, Lenny Bruce perform. And I saw him perform when he was really at the top of his game. Mm. As you know, he, he became, you know, he had a serious addiction problem. And um, there was a point in time where he really wasn't doing stand up anymore, um, which is something that, you know, kind of bothered me because. I think some people have heard recordings of when he wasn't doing stand-up anymore and thought that that was his stand-up, and it wasn't. His stand-up was really tightly written, um, and it was the most avant-garde experience I had ever had in my life, and probably the most avant-garde experience I've ever had in my life, period. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I loved stand-up. But you saw him live? Yeah, I did. What? Where? What was the take? Can you York. take us there? Pardon me? Uh, yeah, I was like, where? Can you take us to that moment? That seems oh, like... Oh, yes. Um, I gypped high school uh, with several uh, <laughs> friends. Uh, we drove into the city. Um, and um, I knew of him because my older brother was a huge fan of his, and, and we had his records when I was a kid. Um, and I had never experienced anything like it because it was really frightening and really funny <laughs> at the same time. I, I had never experienced fear and laughter literally at the exact same moment. I mean, what he was saying was incredible. Um, and he was saying it and, and, and saying it with such a great sense of humor. And it actually made me sad because um, I saw one documentary where he actually denied performing uh, a piece of stand-up that I had actually seen him perform. 
um, and was actually one of my favorite pieces. But I think at that point in time, he was doing everything he could, you know, not to get busted by the police, which is mm. probably why he, he said he'd never done such a thing. What was so scary about it? Okay, well, um, so in the 60s, um, there was a big issue uh, in the Catholic Church and really among Jewish people about um, the fact that the Pope uh, had done virtually nothing to protect the Jews um, during the Holocaust. So... Um, but there was a very big subject that came up, which was the Christian roots of anti-Semitism. You know, to what degree did the story of the Jews being responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus um, feed anti-Semitism uh, throughout his history in the Christian world uh, and leading up to uh, the Holocaust? Um, you know, the Jews were responsible for the worst crime in, in all of history. They killed God. So, um, I, you know, I'm Jewish and um, I see him. <laughs> He's on stage and the place was packed. It was like, I would say the theater held about four or five hundred people. And he gets up and he says, you know, there's been a lot of controversy now over the question uh, of whether or not uh, the Jews killed Christ. Um, and I'd like to settle it this evening once and for all. We killed him. If he comes back, we'll kill him again. <laughs> That's what I mean. <gasps> That's what I mean. Wow. Were, were people upset when they, when they heard that? It, uh, you know, I'm sure, listen, if he didn't upset some people, they weren't paying attention to him. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. I, of course, I think that also goes with saying if you, if you don't offend somebody, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Well, I, I think it depends on the kind of comedy you're doing. Um, I think it's possible. Um, I think about like Steve Martin's act. Um, which was hilarious, but uh, it's it it was also wonderfully silly and and a, and a lampoon of the sort of complete performer. Um, and I don't think anybody got offended, and it was hilarious. So I don't think it I don't think it has to be that way. Mm. It it can be that way, but you know it's like edgy, which I think a lot of. A lot of comics now want to be edgy, um, but I don't think they really, I, I don't think they thoroughly understand what edgy is at its best in stand-up. And I think about somebody like uh, Lenny Bruce, who was edgy. Um, edgy is, um, is when you take on the taboos of your time because you are outraged by the corruption and insincerity of it, not simply to take it on, not because, hey, you know, I'll do uh, pedophile jokes because that's like, you know, that's like a taboo subject. 
it, it, it isn't that. And, and when the great edgy comedians performed, you can tell it was coming from a real a sense of uh, they had an investment in this. They had a moral investment mm. in uncovering uh, the corruption um, as they sought uh, of their times. Um, and I think for a lot of comics now, they just look for, you know, what can't we talk about now? And that's what I'll talk about. Right. Wow. So, so many questions to ask. So, um, so with the book, um, you does you, on one part, you do actually describe of how to come up with your persona. Can, can you describe that to our listeners? How, for newer comics, because a lot of what Hot Breath is is a lot of new comics and trying to understand the game, figure it out. How does a newer comic develop their persona? Okay, that's a great, great question, certainly. Um, well, first of all, you have to be patient because the process takes time, and I'll explain it to you. I mean, sometimes I'm working with someone and it's their first workshop and they say, I'm worried about my persona. I said, well, how long have you been at this? And they say, well, I started on Tuesday. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you better find something else to worry about. Because, um, so it's like sculpture. And let me explain it this way. Um, every time you get a big laugh, um, here are the questions you want to ask. Um, and it's really important to record all of your sets, by the way, so that you're not basing it on, you know, on memory, but you're really hearing what the response is from your audience. Every time you get a big laugh, you want to ask yourself, what was I talking about? Because that big laugh is an indication that your audience loves you when you're talking about that subject. So you want to, develop more material on that subject. And there's a second question you want to ask yourself, and that is what attitudes, what emotions did I play when I did that joke that they loved? Um, and that is a signal from your audience that they love you when you play that emotion. It's like some performers, you know, I think about somebody like Lewis Black, who when he started, you know, was like everybody else in those days, sort of sport jacket and, you know, I'm single and all that stuff. But he discovered in the process of performing that being on the verge of a nervous breakdown uh, played great for him. Um and so he created more material that enabled him to do that and focused on subjects that enabled him to do that. Now, here are the other circumstances that are equally important. They're, they're, they're not fun to go through at the time, but they are at least equally important, if not more important, which is you do a joke, um, you do some material, and you do, if you believe in it, you should do it a few times, even if the reception isn't great, you know, the first time, give it a chance. If you believe in it, give it a chance. But after you've done it a bunch of times, like, you know, three times, four times, and it's nothing, same question. What was I talking about? What was the subject? Because that response or lack of response from your audience 
is letting you know they're not interested in hearing you talk about that subject. And there's nothing personal in it. It's just chemistry. It's just a matter of chemistry. Um, they may love another comic talking to them about that very same subject, but somehow it, they're not responding when it's coming out of you. Um, I, I had a, a, a comedian who was hapless. And when he was hapless, he was hilarious. He, he was in the Navy and, and um, on the first day of their training, failed to tell anyone that he didn't know how to swim. Um, so they all had to jump into this deep pool. Um, and then they all came out but him. And the instructors were like, Jesus Christ, where is he? <laughs> and after establishing how absolutely happy he is, he then went on to tell us that he managed a nuclear plant. Wow. Um, and people just loved it. Um, then he decided he wanted to do some stuff on his sex life. And silence. Uh, they just weren't, you know, they just weren't interested in hearing him talk about that. They'd be very interested in hearing other people talk about their sex lights, but not him. So you start eliminating things. You start eliminating. There are certain subjects that you learn don't really work for you. Um, and the same thing about attitude. What attitude did I play when that joke didn't work? Because that could very well mean that they don't like that attitude from you. And again, it's nothing per it's it's nothing personal. It's like this chemistry really that happens. And I'll give you two ex it, it's like sculpture developing a persona. And that's why I say it's absolutely nothing to worry about when you're starting out. It's it's it, it's a mistake to worry about it. Um, because what what it involves is a collaboration between you and your audiences over a pretty long period of time, um, during which they will teach you uh, what subjects they want to hear from you and what subjects they won't want to hear from you and what attitudes they want to and what attitudes they do not want to. So it becomes like sculpture. Um, there's less wood, there's less marble at the end of the process than there was at the beginning, but what's left is uh, is art. It's what's left is you at your absolute best as a stand-up, um, and that's the persona. You know, it was interesting. Um, Jay Leno um, came in second constantly at the beginning of the Tonight Show, um, and. Um, because of the Nielsen's, they're able, they, they could analyze their viewership, you know, almost second by second. I mean, minute by minute easily. They could see their numbers as, as, as it was happening. And they realized that uh, when he talked, when he did jokes about politics, his numbers went way up. And, and he was taking over The Tonight Show from Johnny Carson who didn't talk exclusively about politics at all. Um, his monologue, you know, he talked about 
culture and movies and celebrities and so on. But Leno's numbers so clearly shot up when he talked about what was happening politically that day that that's what his monologue became. His monologue became, it was the paper. You know, it's like you 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 would see something in the paper and you'd think, I got to see what Jay's going to do with this. Um, so he, they learned that, his team learned that from doing it. Um, and you also learn, um, I worked with um, a comedian in a very old school way, a really wonderful comedian named Rock Albertson. By that, I mean, I wrote literally every word he said, which, which I almost never do. I mean, it's always <laughs> back and forth. But that was the way it was done. I mean, oh, wow. for many, many years, that, that's the way it was done. The great comedians of that time, people like Jack Benny, and really great comedians, they all had you know, a team of writers. And one of the things that we discovered is that um, when Rock was angry, he was hilarious. He was side-splitting. Um, and, and we looked for all sorts of things for him to get really furious about. Like he would get angry at um, what birds a particular state chose as their state bird. You know, he would get angry about stuff, really angry about stuff that wouldn't cross anybody else's minds. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that when he was sarcastic, which seems pretty close to anger, sarcasm, nothing. And so we learn not to go to sarcasm in, in handling a piece of material. Um, we, we, we learned if we couldn't place it uh, emotionally in something that he could get angry about it, um, it wasn't going to work. And if we could, it would work like gangbusters. And that's the kind of thing that, um, that you need time and a lot of performances and being analytical about your work, learning from your audiences. You know, what did they love this time out? What didn't they love this time out? Wow. So really it's just like play with all the toys in the toy store before before you set on something. Yeah. I think that's really a good way to put it, though. Um, I, I, I think you should really just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Really, whatever just crosses your mind, because that's the only way you're going to find out what works and doesn't work. That's that's well said. Wow. That's that is really, really good. Um, yeah. So we actually have one question from a listener that says, um, uh, how do I repair my reputation when another comic burned it to the ground in an effort to acquire my gigs? Um, how do I prove myself reliable without looking? I doth protest too much. So how does someone rep repair reputation that's been kind of destroyed? Any recommendations? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a heavy hitter. <laughs> Part of persona, right? <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I can't answer the question, and I'll tell you why. Um, I don't know what happened. Okay. I don't. Plain I don't simple. know what happened. Plain and simple. Um, um. If if I don't know whether or not this is someone who made something up out of you know maliciously, um, in which case the fact that 
you aren't that way and you never have been that way. And every time you get a gig, you never behave that way. And everybody who knows your work knows you don't behave that way or whether or not something happened. Um, so I, I, I can't, I would need more. I don't know how to answer no Hey, no worries. Um, so hopefully this one's a better question, actually. Uh, Mr. Rosenfeld, how can we address this lack of passion in comedy? Do you feel like comedians need a cause? Comedians have a cause. Comedy is... Make a people laugh. <laughs> well, they have a cause. And the, and the thing is, you know, look, comedy is criticism at its heart. Mm. Okay? That's what it's about. Comedy is about if we leave things just the way they are, we are going to die. So we have to do something about it. I mean, comedy is about looking at the status quo and saying, this sucks. Um, And and so comedy, by by its very nature, it has its cause. Um, just by virtue of having a comedian's point of view. I don't think comedians need to have, you know, like a political cause that, that you could, you know, that you could, you know, recognizably state, you know, it's a feminist or um, uh, gay rights or, or civil rights or, or pro-choice. No, I don't think you need that. I think that doing comedy is is itself. Listen, you know this is really interesting. Um, doing comedy is a very subversive act. Okay, um, when the Catholic Church controlled Europe, um, comedy laughter was banned. Can you imagine, laughter was banned. Um, and they knew what they were doing. <laughs> they, the, those guys knew what they were doing. Um, the only place where you could get away with it was like in the marketplace. You know, you, if you were anywhere near a church, you couldn't get away with it. And if you were in your feudal, you know, with the Lord, you mm-hmm. could get away with it. But if they sent you out to buy a pound of potatoes, <laughs> you could have comedy in the marketplace. Um, but it's subversive. Um, that's that's one. And number two is it, it's interesting. Again, going back to the church um, during Lent, you had to give up. You had to give up these things. You could give up other things, but you had to give up meat. You had to give up intercourse, sex. And you had to give up laughter, which is arguably sort of what the fucking ball game is about. Right? <laughs> I was going to say that is sinful to not. <laughs> I would fail as a Catholic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean they, they were counting on you to fail. <laughs> Whoa. Um. So there's something subversive about it. You know, um, it, it, it takes in, it, it, it embraces and wants to talk about sort of our lower regions of being a human being, you know, the earthy parts, um, earthy parts. <laughs> uh, um, 
and 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 it's coming from a point of view of being antagonistic toward authority. So comedy, just by doing comedy, you, you have a cause. <laughs> by going out there and doing wonderful comedy, I'm making people laugh. That's a cause. Wow. Um, here, here's another one. Um, as a lover of all, of all comedy, what is your take on clean and dirty comedy? Do you see more success one way or another, or is funny just funny? Um, here's, here's what's, here's what happens. Um, if it's clean, you can do it anywhere. Um, you know, you get the nod to be on the tonight show or the late show. Um, and if it's clean, you can, it, from a utilitarian standpoint, uh, clean, um, the clean material is material you can do everywhere. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Sam Kinison, who I adored um, and, and who was a very edgy comedian, um, he couldn't get on any of the television shows because his stuff wasn't clean um, at all. And Carson loved him. And he said, could you do a clean set? And could we do a clean sketch together? And Kinison said, I'd love to. Are you kidding? Absolutely. So he went on Carson, did a clean monologue, um, did did a, a clean sketch, and like the next day was offered his own sitcom. Um, so in terms of reaching the most people, if that's what interests you, and it doesn't interest everybody, uh, the cleaner it is. The the you know the more you can you can do it all over the place. Um, but uh, it certainly doesn't have to be clean. Um, it doesn't have, I mean, th there have been comedians who weren't looking for that kind of audience and who were not looking for that kind of career. Um, and that's fine too, you know, you, you do, there, there's some fair, the thing is it's gotta be funny, you know, mm. that's the thing. Yes. Um, and if it's funny, as far as I'm concerned, it's fine whatever it is. I may not book you on a particular show only because you'd be the wrong audience, but with the right, you know, with the kind of, uh, you know, the prom audience in June, I'm going to love you. Um, it's got to be funny. And if it's clean and funny, you'll have a wider audience, but you may not be that concerned about that, which is fine. So that's kind of an interesting thing with writing funny, but then you stick in that persona piece to it because, you know, I mean, I know a lot of comedians, like several comedians, even like the big touring comedians who have said, my stuff's not funny. You're coming to laugh at the persona. Like, um, like Lewis Black, for instance, he said, if you read my stuff, it's not funny. You're coming to look at the persona of me yelling and screaming like a ranting old man. How do you, how would you suggest like balancing the, the two? the writing and, and the persona. They both have to be there. I'm surprised that Lewis would have said that, frankly. Um, they really both have to be there. It's It's gotta be in order, listen, to have material that just keeps working, like night after night after night, it has to be funny. 
it, it otherwise it's too tenuous you know if it's like and, and this was something that I actually learned from my work in the theater uh, when I was doing new plays it, it, if you're in, if if I hear well it's like funny 50% of the time it's like if I take a little a short breath and then I kind of right before I said look rewrite it okay it's like you shouldn't have to do that it, sh- it shouldn't be like that so no it's it it's here there's material i put it to you a different way there is material that if we didn't know the persona we wouldn't know that it was funny that 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 the material is made funny by our familiarity with the comedian not that it's not funny it's just that's a part of it you know there there was this great moment in radio comedy uh jack benny um and his persona was that he was unbelievably cheap he he was just a mind-boggling miser um and in this radio sketch they did something really daring um he's mugged and mel mel blank played the mugger and Mel Blank goes up to Benny and he goes, your money or your life. (laughs) Silence. And in radio, that was a dangerous move, but his fans started laughing because they knew he was stumped. (laughs) He wasn't frightened. He was stumped. So after this this really long pause, the 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 uh, the mugger goes well, and Benny goes, "I'm thinking, I'm thinking." You know, <laughs> we need time to decide which way wants to go. <laughs> and if you saw that on a page, you wouldn't see how funny that was. Mm. You need the part that's missing is the part that the comedian's going provides it it, it 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 it's his persona but the material is funny it's got to be otherwise it's just, it's not reliable wow Joel you have a question well i'm thinking more in terms of like a big part of what we're trying to do at hot breath is help comedians become professional comedians by creating their own success so, like, you've worked with so many successful comedians. What are some of the more – there's, like, the track of get an agent, get a manager, climb the ladder type deal. What are some more unorthodox ways you've seen comedians, like, become professional? Okay, I must say I don't believe I've ever seen a comedian come professional by getting an agent and a manager. Cool. That That really has – at that critical time in your career – has nothing to do with you becoming successful. And it's part of what I love about, I love that about stand-up. You know, in the theater, if you're an actor, uh, you know, there are all sorts of people between you and being able to get up there and perform. You know, there are directors and casting directors and producers. Um, But there's no one really standing in your way. Um, so agents and managers at that crucial time when you're developing are irrelevant. 
Okay. When you get undeniably good, the suits appear. Mm. <laughs> they appear when the buzz starts happening. There they are. <laughs> um, what, what, so how do you get there? So the goal, the goal is to get undeniably good night after night after night. Um, that is your goal. Um, in front of all kinds of different audiences, um, you are kicking ass. Um, sometimes you're terrific, um, but at your worst, you're good. Um, and that's what it means to be a pro, right? I mean, that's what we expect of the other professional people <laughs> that we like when we go to the dentist, you know, even if it's an off day. <laughs> We're assuming he's still good, you know. Um, so how do you get to that place? Um, I think a very big part of it, um, and a very challenging part of it, because of the nature of the business, is that um, you got to find your way of performing in front of real audiences, um, and that's very, very challenging, um, because in a lot of towns and cities. Um, the open mics, like in New York, for instance, the only people who are there are the other new comedians on the lower rung of the ladder. So, and, and the problem with performing in front of other comedians is not that they're a tough audience. The problem is they're not an audience. Mm. Um, they're not there to enjoy themselves and, you know, and have a couple drinks and, and enjoy comedy. They're there to perform. So part of the challenge um, is, is to find ways to develop your act in front of an actual real audience, people who, uh, um, who are out for, you know, uh, comedy, who, who, who are out for the evening to hear stand-up. That'll give you the most accurate gauge um, of, of how you're doing. Um, and then the next thing, a next thing is um, almost never blame your audience. The comics who, who do that are, are, are probably not going to make it. Um, audiences have invaluable, and I'm talking about real audiences, have invaluable information to give you. So one of the things that I do with the comedians at the beginning part of their career is um, we record. It, it can be an auto recording. It's fine. It doesn't have to be a sophisticated recording. Because really what we want to hear the laughs um, and what we do is we grade the laughs. There's an A laugh, a B laugh, and a C laugh. A laugh is the big laugh, the house laugh, where the place is rocking. Um, B laugh is, it's a good laugh. It's clearly there. It's not the huge one, but it's clearly there. Um, and a C laugh is a chuckle or nothing. And we give ourselves the task of creating an all A set. Um, and that happens um, by being honest about what's going on um, in the club when you're up there. 
Um, and there are ways of taking material that might be B and C material and moving, moving it up to A material. Um, first of all, doing it a few times can help. I've seen jokes that were really fine. It just needed to get comfortable with it. So the first thing to do um, is just do it a couple more times. You know, if you believe in it, don't bail too quickly that that's a mistake. Um, number one. Um, number two is a really great way of punching up a joke is shortening it. Um, shorten it up. Make sure that that setup only has one subject so you're not meandering around. The audience sees exactly what it is you're talking about. Um, are there words in the punchline that can be eliminated? Shorten it. Get it as short, short as punchy. Um, third thing um, is to come at the joke um, from another emotional point of view. And, and this works like gangbusters. And to tell you that I don't know why it works. I consider this to be like my secret weapon. Um, but it works like crazy. Um, how would you both describe your listenership? Is this PG or R or X? I'm thinking of a story that I may or may not tell you here to illustrate my point. Joel. Do it. Do it. Just go for it. You're good. You're this, good. This guy came, came in, and if I hadn't been working on this idea, I and I almost never do this, but I have on occasion after I've heard somebody, if I honestly think I can't really be of help, I you know I don't want to take their money. I mean, I can't help them. So he comes in, and I would have said that to this guy, all right? So he comes in and says, okay, man, here's my first joke. I hate fags, all right? When I think about how those guys fuck, I want to puke. I was like, that's a good joke. Lovely. Um, <laughs> um, so I rewrote it for him. And this is how I rewrote it. I have the greatest admiration for gay men. The highest admiration for them. Because when I think of what those guys have to do to have sex with each other, I mean, that is love. I mean, that is commitment. And that worked. Um, and I didn't change what he wanted to say, which he wanted to say that he found, you know, gay sex to be icky. Um, but by coming at it from exactly the opposite attitude, instead of the attitude of this makes me sick, from the attitude of I have the highest regard for this, um, we got a joke out of what was essentially a piece of loathsome garbage, which is what he had brought in. Um, really telegraph the emotion with it. It sounds like him saying I have the most admiration implies that emotion to the audience. Yeah, no, I mean, we rewrote the joke that he, the joke was, I have the greatest admiration for gay men. I mean, it got rewritten, but from the exact opposite attitude. 
Um, and that can really punch up a joke. And again, you're saying the same thing. You're just coming at it completely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, act outs are really good ways of, of moving uh, a B or a C up to an A. Um, don't tell us what happened. Show us what happened. Um, that can really, really pump it up. Um, and then you want to make sure that um, you're playing it the right way. That that you've got the right you've got the right attitude for the material. Um, so, in the way that I work with other comedians, um, we work to get B's and C's up to A's, um, and and. Um, and sometimes, like a C joke, it's just, it's not going to work, in, in which case we say goodbye to it. Um, stuff that's chronically B stuff, that's okay. You know, um, if you need to do a certain amount of time and you have some B material, um, that's fine. It's as long as most of your act isn't B material. And anytime you're in a situation where you want to do your best, all right, it's an audition, the club's auditioning people, um, um, or, or you're in a festival, which is something that's become really important. These festivals are great. Um, and you want to do your absolute best, only do your A stuff, and only do your most original A stuff. And by that, I mean, if you have a joke, and it's an A joke, and anybody could tell that joke, doesn't need you. It doesn't need the Lewis Black persona to make that joke work. Sell it. Get somebody. If it's generic, Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is, look, here's what they want to know about. You are the subject of your comedy, whatever it is that you're talking about. The subject is always you. That That's the subject. And that's where originality comes in because you figure, you know, okay, what are the subjects of comedy? The subjects of comedy are how I feel about my life, how, how I feel about my past life, how I feel about my life currently, uh, what's happening with my life um, now, and how I feel about my life in the future. That's subject one. Subject two uh, is how I feel about everything else. Um, That's of interest to me. So if I'm interested in politics, how I feel about that. If I'm interested in the movies, how I feel about that. Um, And that's it. That is the end of the list. That is a very short list. But if you take another art form like painting, you know, what's the subjects of painting? Well, you can paint what you see outside your house. You can paint what you see inside and you can paint, you know, kind of what you feel. End of list. So how can you be original? The part of it that's original is your take on it. And that's what they're interested in. They're not, they're really not interested in hearing jokes. They aren't, I know that sounds crazy, but they can hear, they can do that at a party. They're interested in you 
That's what interests them. And you want material that's going to convey who you are to them. And, and when you think of the comedians that are really successful, we have a really personal relationship with them, whether we ever meet them or not. It doesn't matter. You know, I remember when uh, I read that Robin Williams had died. I, you know, it really seriously made me sad. Um, it's him. The subject is you. You are the subject. It is your take on what's going on that people want to hear about. Um, and, 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 and one of the things that I've learned is that there are about five or six things that have to happen for someone to become a professional comedian. It, oh, it was the checklist thing. It's like there are about, there are about five or six of those things that, 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 that have to happen. Uh, funny, of course, funny, <laughs> uh, vivid, you know, they need to get you right off the bat. Um, likeable. And by that, I mean, not that you pander to an audience, but that your struggles are, are out there. That's the way you become likable to an audience. Um, Larry David um, is a classic comedy persona, which I call, which I call the jerk. Uh, you know, he's an asshole and we adore him. <laughs> we adore him. <laughs> we would not want to have a single meal with this man <laughs> because he's impossible. But we love him. And, 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 and the fact that we see him struggle, <laughs> you can see his mind working. Um, that's what makes a comedian likable um, is that they've learned how to talk about their struggles. And, and that's important. Um, but the quality, but with all of those things in place, um, there's the final, the final step is this. What's your story? Wow. What's your story? And if your comedy is making it clear what your story is, um, you, you are headed to the biggest of the big leagues. And that takes time. It takes time to figure that out. Wow. That's big. <laughs> starts, it starts by you writing whatever you want to write about, however you want to come at it, and getting it out there and performing it and seeing what's, what audiences are loving and seeing what they don't like. And that's where it starts, you know, um, in Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, the first sentence of that book is it took me 10 years to learn how to do stand-up comedy. I mean, it's the first sentence in the book. <laughs> and then he said it took me two more years to refine what I had learned. And then I was insanely successful <laughs> from that point on. <laughs> He was madly successful. Wow. But it takes time. It takes time. And, and that's what I mean about, and you have to give yourself that time. You know, you never want to, you never want to say, I'm going to give myself a year or I'm going to give myself two years. Forget it. Uh, that's not how it works. 
you got to decide, I have to do this. You know what I mean? It's like, I really want to do this and I really have to do it. And I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to be the best I can, period. Those are the people who, who, uh, who make it. Or the, those people, it's like once they lock into it, that's it. They're in it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to go back to something you said earlier, which I know is in, in the book, which is don't be so quick to throw something away. And I mean, it may not work tonight or, you know, you may may want to just put it away for a little bit and you'll come back and figure it out. Is one of the reasons possible that sometimes a material may not work is not how it's written, but how it's performed? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, the number one reason you you made reference to this at the beginning. The number one reason that a joke that used to be a killer joke for you has stopped working is because you're doing it differently. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since you wrote that joke, and 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 you don't even remember what the attitude is. Um, I worked with uh, Mary Domino, who's a wonderful comedian. Um, um, when Mary was, I guess, in her late 20s, uh, maybe her early 30s, she was starting to despair about whether or not she'd ever get married. Um, and she wrote this joke. And the joke was like, I could have gotten married. I could have. If I just hadn't have walked into that, that wedding party we had uh, a month before the wedding if I just hadn't said, wow, there's a lot of great looking guys here. That was the joke. Mm-hmm. And it got a huge laugh. Okay. So a couple of years went by. Uh, she fell in love. She got married. Um, that was no longer an issue. And she said, the joke's not working. So I came to see. And, and, and this is the way she did the setup. I could have gotten married. I really could. If I just hadn't, and and her attitude in the setup was she was just beaming about it. It's like she couldn't have, it, it didn't seem to matter. Whereas when it did matter, when she wrote the joke, the attitude was I let my life slip through my fingers. And that's what that joke needed in order for it to work. So one of the things, you know, here, let me say this. In the theater, if you're in a long-running play um, and it's being produced well, um, there are stage managers, uh, directors, director assistants who keep an eye on the production to make sure it stays in good shape. Um, And if you've wandered off the reservation, um, they'll let you know. They'll give you a note. But a comedian doesn't have that. You guys are on your own entirely. Um, And um, what I suggest is that a really complete transcript of material not only has the lines, but it has the attitudes. Mm. Um, So so that it has uh, like, you know, set up parentheses, confused, and then the line. Um, and then the punch and whatever the attitude is. And again, it's not so that you do it in a robotic way. Not at all. 
because actually when you you're sure of what your attitude is you can play that attitude an infinite number of ways but it's so you don't forget so you can go back to it you know the other thing you could do because um you know now so many shows are videoed is go back and look how you performed that joke when it worked see what you did because the number one reason is you're you're just doing it. Well, you forgot what gave that joke life and firepower. Wow. Um, what are some some of the most common mistakes you find first year comedians making? That's an interesting question. Oh, on a roll. Um, never rarely getting out in front of a real audience it's that that is so important and i you know it may be different i know there are there are clubs in 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 smaller cities that i mean the new york um where the open mics may be the only show on a monday night is the open mic so the audience they have people who want to see some comment it's not just the other comedians um, and there's a problem that that's a, that's a mistake. Uh, there's an open mic culture. Um, and this is a damn shame. Um, it tends to, it likes dirty stuff, dirty stuff. Good response. Um, and jokey stuff. That's good response. And, and by jokey, I mean, we know this isn't true. Um, it's just a joke. Um, <laughs> And that's not what paying audiences want to see. It's also not what the people who book the clubs want to see. So well, figure out how to get in, figure out how to get in front of a regular audience. Um, and, and and let me make this point. Um, and that's not what paying our parties are great places <laughs> to do your material. Do them at a party. Um, I don't know if you guys know the 2,000-year-old man that the great uh, uh, comedy albums that were made by Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, but they developed hours worth of material at parties they went to. Um, and the key to this, that that's going to be a better, that it, you know, that's a better audience. That's, a, that's an audience. You know, they're drinking, they're having a good time. And if you're amusing, they want to hear what you have to say. Wow. The key um, is when you're outside or with friends, for instance, don't ask them what they think about it. Just do it. Mm. Don't tell them um, this is a piece of comedy that I'm thinking of doing in my act. What do you think? That is a mistake. Just do it and see if they laugh or see if they smile. Don't ask them their opinion. Um Comedy is one of the very few uh, human endeavors where virtually everyone on the face of the earth is an expert um, and, and will be very happy to impart advice to you. <laughs> the, I, I literally, I, I had a student who, who did his act in front of like three or four of his friends. And I said, How'd it go? He said, well, it went pretty well. I mean, they laughed really through the whole thing. But then we sat down and they told me, you know, what was wrong with it. <laughs> it was like, really? 
Oh, wow. wow. How useful is that? <laughs> you got what you needed. No, you got what you needed to get. They laughed. That's well, that's the ball game right there. Their opinion, don't ask their opinion. Just do it. And if you see their, you know, and if you do it for one person and you see that one person smile, it's hard to laugh when you're by yourself. Um if you see that one person kind of smile and their eyes light up, you're onto something. If they laugh, fabulous. Don't ask them their opinion. Just do it. Wow. Uh, and then you can turn all sorts of situations. I, I know um, a guy, uh, Ted Greenberg, who uh, was a writer for Letterman who decided he wanted to be a performer. Um, and he came to work with me and he just couldn't stand the open mics. So he and a friend uh, went to Grand Central Station, the big train station in New York. And it's quite a beautiful station. Um, and they had the schedule, so the gates would be closed until the train came in. Commuters would just be standing there, you know, waiting for the gates to open. And they would go in the evening and said, uh, you know, we'd love to do a few minutes of stand-up uh, while you're waiting for the gates to open. Um, and they had a really good and reliable audience. Um, so there are all sorts of, there, there are places where you can perform um, that are not necessarily comedy clubs. Um, let everybody know you're doing this. Put it out there. All right? Make the toast at your buddy's wedding mm. and make it funny. Um, if you belong to any kind of organizations, uh, just let people know if they have an event and they need an MC, you're the guy. Um, those are great opportunities to do comedy, all those things. Um, uh, and, and they're not, um, they're not necessarily comedy clubs. Um, so that's, that's important. And, and, and the other thing is, um, and another thing is don't blame the audience. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know, I want to, I want to make this point to you. All art involves more than one person, whatever the art form is, our art form for sure involves more than one person. And your job is to make those other people laugh. And your job is to have a, and not only that, your job is to, um, is to um, provide them with a really great time. That's your mission is to entertain them. So to write it off and say they were dead. You know, I want to tell you something. Um, I have seen more resurrections in my life. Than, um, than, than, than you can count. I've seen more dead bodies resurrect themselves. You know, I'll have a comic come off the stage and say they're dead, and I'm going, wait a minute. And the next comic has them in stitches. Um, the, the problem is not that they're dead. You know, the problem is you didn't get to them, and now you've got to figure out how to do it. Uh, and there's another really important point that I want to make. Um, which is the jokes are not enough. And, and this is what I mean by that. 
there's a transformation that takes place when a group of people become an audience for anything. And that's this. They stop feeling what they're feeling and they start feeling what you're feeling. You're up on that stage. You got all the bright lights on you. They are in the darkness. Um, they start feeling what you are feeling. So for instance, let's say you're not in a good mood. You go see a great movie. You forget you're not in a, in a great mood. You're, you're taking what's coming at you. You see a wonderful play or a great concert. Um, it's what's coming from the stage um, that becomes what you are feeling. They feel what you feel. They feel what you feel. And, and, and the people who don't understand that um, are, are really, uh, here, let me not put it negatively. It's so important that you understand that. And, and that's why I say that joyous communication is the most important technique in performing stand-up. And what that means is not that you are joyous because a joyous comedian <laughs> I don't think I ever heard of a joyous comedian. What it means is that you are taking joy in expressing however you feel to this group of people out here. You will not believe what happened today. You won't believe this. All right? You thought it was bad last week when we talked? That was heaven compared to what happened. All right? That's joyous communication. Um, I'm pissed off. I'm frustrated. But behind it all is, thank God you are here. Um, and, and when you bring that, when an audience feels there is no place on earth that, that you would rather be than talking to you at this moment, um, when you're able to communicate that, uh, you got them. You really got them. Um, they give it right back to you. They feel what you feel. If, if you are taking joy in communicating with them, um, they're going to really enjoy being in your presence. And if you don't, they won't, no matter how good your material is. Um, they, they, they won't. Do, do you have any pre-show techniques or rituals? Like if you're not feeling it, if it's the third show on a Saturday and you're tired, do you have a way to like tap into that joyous communication? Yes, I do. Which is just here. Let me say this. You get to know yourself by that. I mean, sometimes you'll see it. People will be outside just, you know, they want to be by themselves before they go on. And that's fine. And some people want to be with other comics and joking and whatever is fine. But right before you go on, you want to focus on, I'm going to have a great time talking to these people. That's the mantra. Um, and, and, um, and it's cognitive, Joel, in the, in the sense that, um, you know, what we feel is based a lot on, on, on what we're thinking. And if that's what's going through your mind, I'm going to have a blast with these folks tonight. Um, you're going to feel it and you're going to bring it up there and they are going to like you. You're going to really have to talk them out of. <laughs> that's awesome. 
Wow. Um, I actually, you know, and that's kind of interesting when that Joel asked that question, which is, you know, that for a lot of new standups, they're working full-time jobs. You know, I work in education. Joel once upon a time worked at enterprise. We all have different things. And so when you get, when you're exhausted and you, or you've had a bad day, you've had that, uh, that argument with your significant other is making your brain do that turnaround. Because I, 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 I'll admit, I recently had a show where I had worked the day, all day before. I drove three hours to a mm-hmm. show. And by the time I got up there, I was so exhausted that even the br- part of my brain that says, okay, release the dopamine, release the adrenaline, it was like, now nah, we're going to go to sleep. And I just tanked. I bombed, bombed <laughs> hard. And so it's how do you get to that spot of, okay, turn it on. That's a very good way of putting it. Um, you have to learn how to turn it on. And, and you have to realize that for a very short amount of time, when you're up on that stage, um, you really have to, to put aside all the bullshit that's going on in your life um, and get out there and entertain people, um, no matter how you feel. And I know it's, it's a strange thing to say this as a director, um, but it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. In other words, if your first joke is based on you being naive in the setup, then that's what you got to be. You know, what you what you personally feel, uh-uh, irrelevant. You, you got to turn it on and you got to know your set so well that you know exactly, you know, you got to know where your marks are. You know, there was a famous story about Bob Hope. Um, when he was doing vaudeville, he got a telegram right before he went on. He was literally standing in the wings that his mother had died. Um, and there are a couple of people who were standing with him. So they saw the um, the telegram and they, you know, expressed their condolence. And he went out and he killed. And And there were people who said, you know, he was heartless. I don't know if he was heartless or not. What I know is that's the only way he knew how to do his act. Wow. He didn't know how to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. That's technique. Wow. You know, it's technique that comes from um, doing it over and over again. So that that's the way it's not like gears. You don't want to think of it in terms of, you know, first gear, second gear. No, it's like a light switch. Right. you're on you're on it's showtime <laughs> that's funny because like my rule of my house is don't tell me anything bad don't put anything new on me until after i'm done then you could tell me everything you got to tell me and you know what and then you know make sure that the, <laughs> that happened to me at the book the book launch i did a book launch at gotham which is kind of our home club and um and I'm literally I'm standing you know there waiting to go on, and this guy that I worked with a long time ago comes up to me and tells me that a guy that we know had died very painfully <laughs> recently, and he was like, oh, it was awful, you know, he was in a panic. He, he was. I was like, the fuck would you shut up? please 
that's the thing you you know you want to know what's going to help you get into that good space and 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 um and if and if being by yourself does it then be by yourself and take that time um one thing you don't want to do is have alcohol or uh, recreational drugs involved in getting you into that place. That's a deadly mistake. Oh, that's that's an interesting topic. Because um, so I, you know, and I do notice a lot, especially newer comedians, and I'm guilty, did it in my first year of taking a drink on stage with you. And uh, no, <laughs> slippery slope. Well, you know, here's the deal. If you were uh, if you were in the finals of the U.S. Open, and you said to me, you know, I think if I just had a couple of drinks before I get out there, I think it'll. It's like, are you out of your friggin' mind? No. You know, you want to be at the top of your game. You want to be you want to be wired. <laughs> you know, there there are really good comedians who have like this this uh, prep that they do if they don't feel wired. It's like you were saying when when you know um, when it's a small house or whatever, and they're they're not feeling wired. They know they have to get themselves there, and the last thing you want to do is knock that out of you which is what they do. I mean, those things depress you. That's a really, that, that's, that's a bad, bad mistake. You know, you're not a, you're not a patron of the club. Okay. You're an employee of the club. <laughs> um, don't drink. Heavens. No, absolutely not. You want to be at the absolute top of your game. Wow. That's great. Joel, any last questions? This was great. I mean, the comments coming in are just saying this is amazing. And you, there's so many different quotes that are just a masterclass within themselves. So, no, I mean, I don't have you really. Thank you so much, Stephen. This is incredible. You are so welcome. Um, thank you. May I add one thing? Sure. Go ahead. Please. It's normal to be nervous. Okay. It is normal when you have to get up and perform to feel nervous. That does not mean something is wrong. What it means is that you are in touch with your feelings, and that is always a good thing. It's when you are out of touch with your feelings that you can misfire big time on stage. Your nerves as a comedian do three essential things, and that's why it's crazy to artificially try to you know knock them out or take the edge off. One is they give you energy. They give you energy. Um, and, and for a solo performer, having energy on that stage is really important. Two is they give you concentration. Nerves give, they focus your mind. Um, you are totally focused on doing your set the way you intended to. And that's a function of nerves. And the third thing about nerves is this. An audience, they can't see that you're nervous. They, they, they can't see butterflies in your stomach. They can't see sweaty palms. If you are concerned that you'll get a pit, you'll wear a sweater or something. The only part of nerves that they see is your excitement to be there. And that's joyous communication. 
That's exactly what you want them to see. So if you're feeling nervous before a show, um, don't don't think something's going wrong, okay? And you have to do something about it. It's normal. Um, and they will help you. Um, I'll tell you what's good. Oxygen is good. Um, sometimes, when, <laughs> sometimes when we get nervous, our breathing gets shallow. And sometimes when we get really nervous, we actually stop breathing. So taking a couple of really good breaths um, before you go on can settle you up in a, in a really terrific way. So you're ready to go out there and do your best. Wow. Wow. That is, that is absolutely awesome. Well, um, before we leave, um, if anybody uh, is interested, again, the book is Mastering Stand-Up, um, The Complete Guide to Become a, Becoming a Successful comedian and i gotta say i've read this book twice the second time i found stuff that i missed the first time and you know what this might even be a triple read um so you can get the book anywhere it's on audible my dog is crying so it must be time to walk mm. and uh <laughs> are you doing any workshops or anything steven mike uh mike mar was asking about any workshops you do or anything yeah, and actually we're having a great time because we're doing them virtually because of the pandemic, which is awesome because people had to come to New York. And now you can be anywhere and do a workshop. And and it's the full-out workshop. It's all there. We have our group meetings where people present in, in front of class. And then we have private individual times together where I, I'll work with you on your material. And and then we do a virtual show. This has really been um, this has really been terrific. Again, there are people literally from all over the world um, who we're all together in real time, cool. um, and they can do it, you know, from from their from their home. So absolutely, yeah. And if you go to our website, um, if you look for the American Comedy Institute, all the information and the schedule about our workshops is there. And what is the website? Awesome. Um, if you just Google American Comedy Institute, you'll you'll find it. There you have it, hot brethren and sisterin. After over 400 episodes, this has been one of my favorite talks about comedy yet. I would love for you to show support to Stephen. Reach out to him on social media, email him, let him know how awesome this episode was and how awesome we are at the Hot Breath Diverse. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome aboard. We have plenty of other content to help you level up your game. And if you're a returning listener, listening through this outro, I appreciate you so much. Thank you all for spending your valuable time with us. Steven's book is linked in the description of this episode as well as our master classes so you can join Hot Breath Pro maybe hear yourself on an episode someday. But now, it is time, my friends. Until next Monday, right here on Hot This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.